Welcome to Inside the Hive. I am Emily Jane Fox, and we have very exciting guests today, plus my co-host, Joe Hagen, and drumroll, we have Nick Bilton back with the both of us today. It's like the gang's all here, guys. I'm so glad I'm here today to join you uh, as we short game stock together. That's the point. That's the whole point of this exercise. Everybody's trying to figure out how to explain it. I, it doesn't make any sense to me, and I've been following it all um, for for the past four days. I do. It does make a little sense, but it's just it's insane, honestly, what happened uh, this week, and it's still happening. It feels like everyone who has been using the stock market as like a fun casino game to make money is now upset that other people are using the stock market as a fun casino game to make money. Pretty much. A bit of a pop, populist uprising in on the market. <laughs> uh, I think what happened, well, 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 I think there's a couple of things that have happened. Like one thing is that you have this, the memification of everything. Uh, and that, of course, is, you know, that has now reached the stock market, as we saw this week, where, you know, you have your Reddit users who are essentially memifying buying stocks. I mean, they not only did they go after GameStop and AMC and things like that, but they were like buying BlackBerry and Tootsie Roll and Blockbuster, even though Blockbuster isn't even a business. It was just it was kind of just like a, a goofy, fun um thing for a lot of them. And then, of course, the hedge funds, which, of course, do not like to uh, be beaten, uh, figured out a way to to come back around, have Robinhood not allow their trades. And now we're in the situation where uh, all of these poor young people who thought they were screwing over the big guy got screwed over themselves. Isn't that what always happens? But it's but I think that the, the other aspect of it is like, you know, I think when you look at, at the proliferation of how technology has allowed anyone to do anything, you know, it, I, one of the things that I've found so fascinating during the pandemic was pre-pandemic, you had people who were doing Zoom TV shows, right, that were like trying to emulate CNN and CNBC. And then you had and CNN and CNBC and those other channels that were doing these traditional interviews and so on. And now everyone's on Zoom, so everything looks the same. And the same thing has now happened with podcasting, which we're doing with replacing radio. The same thing has happened with with news. And I think for the first time, we actually saw it now happen with the stock market uh, and you know how that plays out. This isn't over. It's not just going to be done in a week. Like how that plays out over time, I think is going to be really, really fascinating to watch. Well, and this is an iteration of something that's been going on for years. I mean, I used to have reported on you know the culture of day traders and you know whole kind of rooms of guys chasing you know anything and everything to chase momentum on Wall Street. That was the first iteration of it. But now. This is like, uh, like you said, the meme aspect allows them to kind of collaborate and get momentum in mass around this one stock. Yeah, and, and it, I think what's, I mean, I'm still allowed to curse on here, right? Is that is that yeah. is that okay? You, you may curse. Okay. Okay. What's only so like curse words up? here? <laughs> <laughs> what's so fucked up is that you know the hedge funds. Went to Robinhood, where all these 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 retail day traders are trading, right? These 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 people that don't have a lot of money um, uh, and care about this brand for the most part, and also want to stick it to the to the big bad rich guy. So the Wall Street traders go um, to Robinhood and places like that and tell them today to not allow right. traders to trade, only to sell, which is only going to piss them off more. I mean. This is just inflaming the resentment. And it's interesting because these guys already, I mean, they're they're almost driven in some ways by resentment of these larger banks who they think are, you know, trading with each other and making each other rich at their expense. And this seems like it's going to um, only uh, blow up in their face again. Yeah. I mean, look, the the Wall Street folks... Don't like to be beaten, um, as we see in the Wolf of Wall Street movies and things like that. So, but um, it definitely, you know, it definitely feels like we're in the. I'm not a big baseball person, but I think the first inning—that's where we are. And so, here's a little a little populist 
uprising on Wall Street. And then, uh, you know, it, it's the haves and have nots in battle on every level of our society, including mm-hmm. vaccines. Yes. I have so much to say on this. Nick, I know you do too. And I think it's because we are both currently in Los Angeles where the COVID numbers obviously have been horrendous for basically since the beginning of this, they have gotten significantly worse in the last few months. There is such a dearth of leadership at the top, which Nick, I know we talked about a few weeks ago when you when you blessed us with your presence. It is crazy what is happening right now, now that they have started this incredibly botched, confusing, insane rollout of the vaccines. And it is a town where people are so used to wielding their influence and their power and their money to get whatever they want, whether that's an invitation to an award show or a reservation at a power lunch spot or mm-hmm. a place in a an admission scandal situation where they're trying to get their kid into USC by faking photos of their kid on a crew team. And what we're seeing now and what you and I have been hearing anecdotally and professionally is people who are not within the designated guidelines to qualify for a vaccine at this point in time are doing everything that they can to get a vaccine ahead of schedule. What, what are you hearing? What are you seeing? What's your thought on what we're, what we're currently witnessing here in Los Angeles? Well, I think, look, the, the reality is there's a movement going on in California right now to recall Gavin Newsom, and, uh, and it's picking up a lot of steam. And it's not people on the right that are starting this and pushing it forward as much as it is people on the left. And I think the, the way that California has handled the vaccine from the beginning has not been handled well. I think, you know, they were smart to say, OK, let's lock down will be the first to do that. But then they, for no reason whatsoever, with no data, with no proof of anything, they decided to continue this lockdown. And it ebbed and flowed and opened and closed. And there was no thought to small businesses, to people, to to anything as to how it would affect people's livelihoods. And I think that it backfired. I think that there was, you know, you look at New York, which has actually done a pretty incredible job of managing cases and caseloads and so on since the big, you know, after that first surge in the beginning, of course, they kept schools open. You could eat outside. There were all these things that you could do that, that California wouldn't let you do for no reason whatsoever. And I think that when it comes to the vaccine, you're seeing the same thing happen. So we had, you know, in the beginning, 1.4 million vaccines, and we had only used up a, a, a tiny percentage of it because Gavin Newsom said, oh, well, I want to make sure we just get the healthcare workers first. The problem was 40% of the healthcare workers didn't want it for whatever reason. Some of them had had COVID already. Some of them didn't trust the vaccine. Some of them were too busy. So for weeks, we just sat there with, with an accumulation of vaccines just piling up and them not being used. And finally, you get this pushback from people where, um, you know, there are now we have, I think, three million vaccines that are that have not been used. That Some of them will expire. They don't get used soon. And an incredible amount of confusion as to where to get the vaccine. The vaccine websites in California are run by volunteers, literally volunteers that started the websites about where to go and everything because our stupid state didn't have the wherewithal to be able to figure it out on their own and, and anticipate what was going to happen. And so so on the one hand, you do have people that are trying to take advantage. On the other hand, so what? I mean, it's like if the state has failed you, then maybe you have to take things into your own hands. Well, I don't know. That's my theory. Uh, here's, here's my thought about it. And, and this is from reading what medical ethicists are saying and just my, my personal belief is like, okay, there are – so many doses that are going to have to be thrown out or discarded because the rollout has been so confusing, so botched, all of those things. And if you are in a position to get one of those doses that is really an extra dose that will be thrown away and you are younger than 65 years old or not immunocompromised or not an essential worker, I think that you should get those doses. I think that 
rather than having them be thrown away, it is in the interest of public health to have as many people vaccinated as possible and to have those doses wasted makes me physically ill. Well, with and that if you said, look at Israel. Yes, exactly. Go ahead. Yeah. No, if you look at Israel, they were like, well, let's just vaccinate everyone. We're going to be open 24 hours a day. I think that's been the, the most frustrating part for me is, so actually this week I volunteered at a vaccine site at Magic Mountain, um, and I helped the nurses filling out CDC cards and getting the vaccine and stuff. And what was interesting was there were clearly people who were 60, most people were 65 and older, which is now the requisite, the prerequisite to be able to get the vaccine coming through. But there were clearly people who were not, who had either fake letters to say they were a nurse or a doctor or said they were a healthcare worker. And most of the nurses that I was working with didn't care. And I said to the one, the, this woman, um, uh, this woman Taylor, who I was working with, I said, how come you let those two go through? And she said, at the end of the day, the more people that have this vaccine, the less people who are going to get sick. And all we need to do right now is get shots in arms and that's it. And so right. I think that at the end of the day, the, you know, Gavin Newsom and even Garcetti have been so concerned with like making sure that everything is fair and even that they're killing people as a result of their stupid decision making. Yeah, I agree with that's that. happening in New York, too, by the way. The rules oh, yeah, New York. were so yeah. stringent that they've, you know, they're just they're hurting themselves. They're not getting enough people in, you know, because yeah. everybody thinks they can't. You know, they don't meet the standard. Nobody knows when they're going to meet the standard. And by the way, like people I know who for one reason or another were able to get it, for instance, people I know who teach in person, you know, they're all allowed to get it also, even if they're younger than 65. But then uh, the appointments all get canceled because the hospitals run out. And so the distribution is also completely dodgy, you know, you know, but and so the, given all this chaos, we're in a free for all. Well, and my problem, and Nick, I know that you've been hearing some of this stuff too, and, and Joe, I've talked to you about it, is people who are connected and smart and savvy are using that confusion to their advantage. And while I think we all agree that it is a good thing to get as many vaccines and as many arms as possible, what has sort of started rubbing me the wrong way is wealthy, privileged people using their wealth and their privilege to sort of outsmart the really stupid system. And we're starting to see people going to low income neighborhoods that they have heard through their professional and personal grapevines have extra doses at the end of the day. And they'll start lining up at 6.30 in the morning, knowing that the doses won't be there until six o'clock at night. And they have the time and the resources and the means to wait all day in a line. And They've gotten the extra doses. And while I think that that's great and I think that those are legitimately extra doses, it's not like those doses wouldn't go to people who actually live in those communities who do actually have to go to work. Mm -hmm. They don't have the time yeah. because they have to go to work to sit in a line for 12 hours. They don't have the childcare. And so it's, you know, the, people have been saying to me, well, they would have thrown the doses away. And it's like, well, no, they wouldn't have. They would have gone to people who didn't have the means to wait in line for 12 hours. So well, it's a slippery slope. Yeah, well, they they would have thrown the doses away because they the, because of the state, but but now that they've changed, this, it's like one of, somebody was telling me who who works at one of these vaccine sites that before people started to realize you could wait in line, they were literally throwing the doses away. Totally, like hundreds of them sometimes, and and so you know I, there was this photo I saw on on social media yesterday of uh, some people who were working with the vaccine and they were they were on their way or they they were somehow they got stuck in a snowstorm. And the vaccine, once it's been taken out and it's put in its um, in, in the in the syringe, you have two hours to use it. And they realized it was going to go to waste. And they the car the, the car they were in was stuck on the side of the road, so they literally started flagging down cars and giving people the vaccine so that it was used. And I feel like if we would if we were to, to take that approach, and you could say sure, like let's try to let's do everything we can to get like the older people first and the and, you know, the people who need it and teachers and all these things. But if we were to take that approach, we would have vaccinated most people probably by April, given the numbers that exist and the number that the, the pharmaceutical companies said that they have already made that they're waiting to distribute. But instead, we're, we're, we're doing the opposite and people are going to die as a result of it. Do we know whether the Biden administration has got a answer to this? 
It's a good question. So, you know, Joe Biden said uh, 100 million people will receive the vaccine in the first 100 days. That's, right. his, that's his plan. Um, the Trump administration, which all they cared about was the fake fraud bullshit, right. uh, didn't do much of anything to try to help make sure people got the vaccine. Uh, and so their rich, their original plan was 20, 20 million before uh, the end of December. They, they, I think, pulled off maybe like 3 million, 4 million or something like that, maybe even less. So by January, we, we, had, we were like just hitting 5 5.6 million at that point. So we were so far behind because by the end of January, they were talking about 50 million. So now we're at a point where the states have, have there been so much outcry. The states have gotten themselves, many of them have gotten their shit together. And we are now, we've now passed 20 million people who have at least received the first vaccine. It's only 1% of people who have gotten the vaccine who have gotten the second one. So we're still really far behind with that. But the good news is we're vaccinating one. 0.3 million people a day. The question is, all of this regulatory nonsense that happens between everything, so it, the vaccine has to go through the federal government to go to the states, to go to the, the sites, and, and so on and so forth. And I think the thing that the Biden administration is talking about doing, which will change everything, is if they get more people to be able to give the vaccine, you know, more pharmacies, doctors. Uh, there's a talk of, of bringing like army medical um, staff in, of getting veterinarians that know how to give uh, uh, someone a syringe, like of, of, of making it a 24 hour day thing. If that's the case, this thing's over by summer because you've got 85 million kids in America that don't need it, right? right. Um, you've got X percent who probably don't want it. So if you get that 100 million people with the vaccine, we're done. Um, yeah. And so the hope is that they can um, they can make that all happen in the next, you know, what, 95 days? Well, my feeling is, look, obviously this administration is 180 degrees from the last administration when it comes to trustworthiness. That doesn't mean that, that the Biden administration should be unquestionably trusted and just accepted at their word. But I would find it hard to believe with the kind of political savvy they have in the White House now that they are overselling what they're going to deliver here. I think if anything, they're underselling what they believe they're able to deliver. Yeah, I think so too. I think, you know, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is supposed to be going to the FDA, um, uh, I think next week. Um, they're saying it'll take a month before it's approved, there's uh, there's some reports I've read that it's going to be seventy percent effective. Um, obviously, not as effective as the other two, Pfizer and Moderna, which are ninety four to ninety five percent effective. But but it's a single shot, um, and, and it doesn't need the refrigeration, right? Doesn't need the refrigeration, and you know I think a lot of people are are, are excited about that idea, um, and I think that it could actually uh, allow them. But again, you know, you've got the red tape of the FDA. Um, and I think, you know, I, I, this, these words rarely ever come out of my mouth, but this is one place where I totally agree with Donald Trump, where he was he was livid at the FDA that they hadn't even reviewed the Pfizer and Moderna um, findings. And it sat there for like three weeks and before they even looked at them. And I think, you know, the fact that the FDA is like, oh, it'll take us a month to review it. I mean, what? Look at the data and decide. It doesn't. It shouldn't take you a month every time. There's there's four thousand people dying a day in America, and you want to take a month to review the data. Like, it's just it's insane. Yes, but at the same time, you have you know forty percent of healthcare workers in LA refusing the vaccine. Some of it is because of other factors, but a lot of it is because people don't trust the vaccine and how quickly it was rolled out. So I understand the urgency of this and how frustrating it can feel to have that bureaucratic red tape, but you also have the public trust aspect of it where you want them to take the time to review the thing. It's a, it's a really difficult line to toe. And this just is the beginning of the challenges that the Biden administration is walking into because they are inheriting a mess, as we now know, that basically they had no plan inherited. Like they, there was nothing that they got when they walked in the door that resembled an adequate strategy for combating the most difficult problem that we've faced in modern times. So 
I, we I are did at the have start. a uh, I did have a funny uh, uh, a funny sadistic uh, thought of like imagine if like if the anti vaxxers are right and like everyone who gets the vaccine like dies in like six months and the only people left on planet Earth are the anti vaxxers like left to to fend for themselves in this in this world. That's a no, horrifying thought. They'll make like Jim Carrey becomes their president. Um, <laughs> horrible. That, that's that's truly. You can write that sci-fi script uh, for Hollywood, Nick. Uh, now that yeah, you're now that it. you're um, now that you're in the deal flow uh-huh, uh, yeah. of the Hollywood scene. This is inside the hive. Hi, it's Radhika Jones, editor in chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. And, and speaking of stranger than fiction, Nick, mm-hmm. we have you here today because we love you and because we wanted to talk to you about all of the things we just talked about. But there's a greater reason for your presence here today. And that is because you have worked on, made, created an absolutely riveting documentary for HBO called Fake Famous that premieres on February 2nd. I was lucky enough to watch it several months ago. Joe, I know, watched it this morning, so it's fresh in his brain. We both loved it, and we want to hear everything about it. Tell us the premise. Tell us how you got involved in it. Just tell us the whole shebang. So, well, thank you both for watching it and for having me on the show today uh, to discuss it. Um, I'm very excited. It's my it's my directorial debut, so it's the first time I've directed a film. So it's, which Very is, exciting. When your name came exciting. up, I was very excited for you. Thank you so much. It was really fun. It's like a really, I mean, it was an incredibly challenging process and I can see why films are so hard to make. Uh, but it was, it was a lot of fun. Um, I really, really enjoyed the creative aspect of it and everything. And the idea for the film came about, so uh, as you both know, I've been a reporter for a long time and I've written about bots and I wrote about them back in the early days of social media and, and when Graydon Carter was um, at Vanity Fair, he said to me, oh, we should we should do a documentary on influencer culture. And I just in passing said, well, I could make an influencer in like 10 minutes. And he said, well, that's a documentary. Um, and so uh, what we did was I teamed up with Annabelle Dunn, who's an amazing producer, and Graydon and, and a bunch of other folks. And we decided we were going to try to make three random people that had a very, very small following online. uh, And I was going to buy them a bunch of fake followers and fake likes and fake comments from bots. And we were going to see how their lives changed for the better or worse. And if they were perceived as, or even became famous. And so that is the premise of the film. Well, let me just say from the outset, you know, a lot of people are going to come at this with as minimal a knowledge as I had about this world of influencers. I know what they are generally, people with a lot of followers. I didn't know about bot farms and buying commenters and this whole world of basically machinery connected with the big social media companies like Instagram in this case, who basically underneath them are the equivalent of like suckerfish companies, right? (laughs) That are feeding into their bottom line, essentially, right? By allowing people to create fake fame on Instagram. It's it was it's the whole world. And then I, now, as somebody who has a teenage daughter and who's accessing this world basically on a daily basis, it, gave, it kind of unnerved me in some way to see uh, what the, you know, how it all, how the sausage gets made, so to speak. Um, when you went into it, did you have a, kind of gut feeling about influencers and about what their social value was? No, I mean, look, I, we've all like heard the term influencer and we saw the fire fest and things like that. And, and I think that 
there is a perception that, you know, there's definitely, it's definitely got a negative connotation next to it. You know, when we think of influencers, we think of like people with, with hot bodies and bikinis on the beach and, you know, and, and like Kim Kardashian and things like that. When I went into it, I had no idea just how insane it was. Um, and how many of them there were. Uh, it's almost like they're like gremlins that someone poured water on after midnight or something. It's like yeah. there are so many influencers and so much of what they do is completely bullshit. It's completely fake. And I, so I, you know, as a tech reporter, I wrote about covering social media. I obviously wrote about a lot of these companies, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, uh, Snapchat very, very early on and, and signed on to them and used them, you know, in, in, in their heydays and all of them I've, I've, I've not, I don't use really anymore. And Instagram, I was, I used a lot and completely stopped using it. And then for the documentary, I had to redownload it and, and use it again because I was manipulating, uh, the social following of these three people. And I remember there was a moment during the pandemic where I was like really bummed out and, um, and my wife was like, what's, what's up with you? You're, you're never like this. You're usually like just bouncing off the walls. And I was like, I just feel like our life is so boring. And she was like, huh? And we we realized that because I'd been following all these influencers that we were emulating and I'd been seeing them like on their, in their like van life lives and like on their mm-hmm. trips and like living these grand lives, I started to feel like shit because I felt inadequate in the world that I lived in. And I, and I realized like, holy shit, if I'm a tech reporter and I'm doing a film about this and I feel like shit, how is it making the millions and millions of kids that follow these people feel? And so one of the biggest takeaways for me was realizing just how vapid and dark and, and just negative this world is on society and especially on, on the next generation. You really tapped yeah. into the comparison trap that you're just referring to and how, you know, obviously long before the internet, people compare their lives to other people. But what the internet and and social media really gave rise to is the ability to curate one's existence and post the most glamorous, fun, beautiful version of someone's lives without any of the sticky stuff and and post it and have other people feel bad in comparison to to that glitzy glossed up version of other people's lives it is all bullshit and not only is it bullshit because you're only seeing a tiny stylized fraction of people's lives but because there are ways in which people have figured out how to sort of game the system and the social networks have fed into those games can you talk about the ways in which you've come to realize that influencer culture is all bullshit so in the film, we take these, we've, we, we put out this casting call um, and we asked one simple question, do you want to be famous? And it was put on one casting site. Um, there are probably thousands of casting calls that are put out a day on the, on all these different sites. We just used one. We got 5,000 responses just from that question. Do you want to be famous? Wow. We were able to take those 5,000 people, narrow them down to about 250. And then we brought them in the room and filmed them and had to decide, we decided we want to get it down to, um, uh, to about two or three people. So we get it to these, um, uh, to three people. And then I start buying them fake engagement, right. And fake followers and so on. How do you do that? And, um, so will you go to these websites? Like, uh, one website I used is called Famoid, F-A-M-O-I-D. You go to like another one is called Wolf Global. There's like IG followers. There's, there's all these different sites. And what I would do on the site was, uh, you pay like, you know, it depends how much money you want to spend, but you could pay a hundred bucks and you could get, um, 10,000 followers for that. The quality of the followers changes based on, how much money you spend. So if you spend, you know, you could spend $10,000 and have the best bots imaginable that are indistinguishable from real people. And in some instances will be with real people and their, their accounts have been hacked. And then there are other instances where um, you get pretty crappy ones. And so I start buying these kids, their followers and, um, uh, and their engagement starts to go up all from me buying it and it's all fake and so on. And one thing that happened was 
one of the subjects, I won't give the whole film away, but one of the subjects, she becomes essentially a famous influencer, right? And she gets invited on this road trip to Las Vegas with all these other famous influencers. And on the road trip, I am buying her fake engagement. So it looks like she has real engagement. And as I was doing this, I was looking at these other influencers and I was realizing they were, some of them were using the same services I was using. So I, the joke was essentially on us because we had gone through this whole process to get there. And they have, of course had done the same thing. We had filmed it, but you know, look, the, the, the numbers are just astounding. I mean, there are probably three to 4,000 real celebrities in the world, right? Literally like real, like A-list celebrities. If, and that's a, that's a really pushing the number high, like this, you know, when you, with A's and B's and so on, there are, uh, on Instagram, there are 140 million people who are considered famous influencers because they have over a hundred thousand followers each 40 million of which have over a million followers. How is it possible that half of the population of the United States can be famous on one platform? It's, it's just total bullshit. It's completely made up. I have to tell you, so this morning I started following on Instagram a young woman named Dominique Druckmann, who you'll learn about, uh, dear listener, if you watch Fake Famous by Nick Bilton. And it's interesting to watch your documentary and then go onto her site and look through her posts. What a revelation to understand what's going on behind the scenes and to know backstage behind just this one account which is like so many that you come across, right? She's got 340,000 followers. And to realize how, how it all gets done and the intent behind it and all the work too. It's like almost like, like a kind of a horrible lifestyle, if you ask me, having watched it on your documentary. But, but just as a for instance, and I'm going to pluck this out because I loved this in your documentary, uh, the toilet bowl, uh, the yeah. toilet cover, seat cover that you bought. Yeah, uh, and uh, you're sort of our guide in the documentary itself. But tell people about that because it's really amazing. So one of the things that happens with the with the influencer culture is that you have a lot of stuff is fake. Even when influencers are on real vacations, they are not necessarily being honest about how it is. So if you're if you if you had a shitty night's sleep and you, you know and and you got food poisoning from the restaurant and the hotel, you're not posting that on your social media because you got the vacation for free and then you won't get any other vacations for free. And so even the real stuff is not real. And most of them talk about that when like behind the scenes, the other part of it is most of the, most of it is actually completely fake. So one thing we did to show that was we organized a few days of fake photo shoots. Uh, and I call them fake photo shoots because you take just anything you want and you can make it seem like if you crop it properly that you're somewhere that you're not and you can post it online and tag it as if you are. So the toilet seat one, you can I, we ordered a $12 white toilet seat on on Amazon. We went into my bedroom and uh, on the TV got a picture of a the of a uh, an island um, from above. So it looked like you, you know, the kind of thing you would see out of a plane window. Dominique sat there. We gave her a fake glass of champagne. And then I, I held the toilet seat up behind her. And then we took a bunch of photos and we cropped it. And when you look at it, it looks exactly like she's on a private jet, but it cost us $12 and we were in my bedroom. And so there are places that you can go to actually rent fake private jets too for $50 an hour um, and, um, we show all of this stuff in the film, but it was like, just to see how easy it was, um, was honestly pretty, pretty comical. This is Inside the Hive. It's wild to think that you did this so simply and you just manufactured it in a lab and I won't give anything away, but it wasn't easy, but it was achievable and you go through all the hiccups and all the work that actually goes into it, but it's it's something that anyone with a credit card and a will could technically accomplish. I guess the thing that, that we really took away over here in this house was how desperate people are for this kind of fame. And to me, and I think to both of you guys, like 
I don't think we seek the fame of, you know, talking front face to a camera on Instagram. That's not really appealing. But you just walk around town and you see people talking to their phones. And how many times have you seen people posing in front of brightly colored murals on the side of a building or on an airplane, people taking selfies and then posting it online? There is an entire culture built around being famous online and and frankly, famous for doing nothing. And I think that the best part about what the documentary shows is that that culture exists and it pervades and, and it can be bought if you have the will. Yeah. I mean, I think to me, what's what, um, you know, we opened the film up um, with one of my favorite, favorite parts of the film, which is, you know, this like three minute montage against opera music of people taking selfies against the pink wall in Los Angeles and that pink wall is home to the Paul Smith store and is, of course, one of the it is one of the top tourist destinations in L.A., if not the world. And it's a flat pink wall. But people go there because they want to ensure that they get the most likes, which gets them the most followers and the most comments on their feed. And a pink wall stands out uh, against other other things. And. It, and that's all over LA. There's like the the angel wings and the graffiti wall and the, all these different things. And, and other stores now in LA have started to paint themselves pink with the hope that they can become a backup pink wall when the pink wall is too busy and, and try to get some customers out of it. You know, clothing stores have like changing rooms where they have, um, they have different colors and lights and backgrounds in there so that people will go in to try on their clothes to post on social media it's all just made up. It's all not real. And, you know, there's these studies that have been done. This to me is, is one of the saddest parts. And honestly, one of the main reasons I really wanted to do the film is that there's these longitudinal studies that have been done over the past, you know, 30, 40 years where they ask kids every single year, what do you want to be when you grow up? And at first it was a doctor and a lawyer and an astronaut. And then it was a musician and a basketball player and, and an actress and and so on. And now 87% of kids say they want to be a famous influencer. Mm. And they see that because they think it's a fast track to that, that quote unquote successful life. And there's, we interviewed Justine Bateman, um, who of course was a teen actress and wrote an amazing book on, um, on fame and what it all means and so on. And she had this great line, she says in the film, which, which is, you know, which was a big eye opener for me is she's like, what these influencers are doing, it's not fame. It's its like you're an infomercial host and you're just shilling a product and it's all kind of been labeled incorrectly. And I think that to me was one of the big eye-opening moments um, uh, in the whole process. Can you tell Can you tell me a little bit about, you know, obviously it's it seems glamorous and you're getting all these products for free and you're getting all these vacations for free, but they're also making a lot of money. Can you just tell me about the financial realities for the most successful influencers and even even the middling influencers who have, you know, 500,000 followers, not the ones who have many, many millions of followers? Well, even the ones that have many, many millions of followers. It, uh, well, okay, so we'll start at the bottom. So if you're like a micro influencer, like you'll get some free stuff, you know, like we, uh, there was some, a lot of things that happened after we were done filming that we couldn't get because of COVID. But, you know, there was like, there were moments where Chris and Wiley, our other two influencers that um, that we that we created, they would get like, you know, uh, Chris got like a weed pipe in the mail. Someone reached out and said, hey, can we send you this? Um, Wiley got some T-shirts. Like, you know, people reach out to me all the time asking if I want stuff like just random computer things and so on, which I, of course, don't take. But but you can get things that are just random free things. The higher up you go, you can start to get sponsorships. Um, so Dominique ends up getting a... a a deal where she is paid to post some things for a jewelry company. Uh, she gets offered to go on an influencer vacation, uh, which was valued at $5,000. We She got a free mattress, free uh, coffee machine, like all of the like random clothes and creams and you name it. And we only got her to a quarter million followers. 
once you get up to like the the millions, it's it becomes your career and you can make a lot of money. And we interviewed people that owned agencies that told us about how they had paid, you know, influencers eighty thousand dollars to post something. But the problem is, is is it's it's all just a lot of spaghetti against the wall because you don't they these companies don't know what really works. They're just guessing. Um, and because most of the engagement is not real. The people that I've spoken to, and they're not in the film because a lot of them didn't want to be, but we just spoke to them for the reporting of it, who have become, you know, real famous influencers with massive followings, hundreds of thousands of real followers and and mil- or millions of followers. They hate it. They think that th- they're kind of imprisoned by this. They worked their asses off to get there. And now that they're there, they can't leave it because it's lucrative, but it's exhausting and like we would do, we would do a full day photo shoot with photographers and lighting equipment and all this stuff. And those photos would last us for like two, three days. And then you'd have to do another one. And so it's really an exhausting lifestyle. And I think that at the end of the day, no one really involved in it, except a few narcissistic, vile people really enjoy it. Um, and those narcissistic people, the ones that really enjoy it are so fucked up, uh, you know, like the Jake Pauls of the world that are just disasters. Um, like, do you, is that what you want to be when you grow up? Like, yeah, it doesn't seem like a fun life. It all seems like the final result of something that's been going on for a long time. I thought about this while I watched it, got this sort of pit in my stomach about it. I remember, you know, I'm old enough to remember, uh, you know, when <laughs> Friendster and and that stuff started first emerging and the first sort of reaction from people, I remember was like, is this what we're going to do on the internet? Just market ourselves like that you and your ability to market yourself or something is who you are and who you're going to be. And now, of course, that seems very old fashioned. Of course, that's just what it is, right? Everything is just turned into you know, your identity and your is your ability to market whoever you are. And, and by using social media, you kind of are marketing yourself, even in the most innocuous ways. You're showing your lifestyle, you're, you know, and in this case, this is just ramped up and taken to its final capitalistic, you know, zenith, right? Is just, I am a sales person for my life and then you're going to pay me to do it. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think that the reality is, is that we're at this turning point in all of this stuff. I think that, you know, we've seen the negatives everywhere, right? That we've seen them with the, the MAGA riots at the Capitol. We've, we've seen Donald Trump and what he did on the platform. We've seen society's obsession with fame, the, the fire fest influencer culture, you know, this week with, with, GameStop and we we've seen the positives too, right? Um, Black Lives Matter and Me Too movement. We've seen all those things. And I, but I think what's happened as of late is that the bad outweighs the good by a long shot, by a very, very, very long shot. And um, and I think now is the time that we kind of need to reevaluate. And and it's very, very clear that the companies don't give a shit. I mean, I you know. I, I started this Instagram account when I, when we started this whole thing that, so I could use to like test out some of the bot services and like make comments and things. And I can't, I literally can't remember the password and I don't know how to reset it because it's not tied to an email address I have anymore. So Instagram is still on my phone because of the the doc. And I get not even over-exaggerating 20 alerts a day from Instagram to re-enter that account because so-and-so's posted, or you might like this photo. And they just badger the shit out of me. And I can't wait to delete Instagram from my phone again, so they'll, they'll go away. But the algorithm and these vile, disgusting companies, all they give a shit about is me just clicking on one of those alerts so they have one more active user, and they don't care about what it does to me. And I think the only way to fight back against this is to delete the app. And that's exactly what I hope. Well, and to, I would say that, uh, you know, about a few months ago, I think I discussed this with you. I I saw The Social Dilemma and watching that and then watching your documentary, I felt like I finally understood what all the ramifications were of these big tech companies and the power they have right now. And we're definitely at this inflection point where they're at least giving lip service to 
you know, oh, maybe we need to re-architect the way it works so that misinformation isn't extrapolating out and doing actual harm and causing having undue influence on people in the way that it did on QAnon people. Um, you know, but my question to you is, I know this is kind of a tough one to answer, but can this be put back in the box? I think it can. I think that I absolutely think it can. I, and I think like, I think where we screwed up is technology moves faster than anything else. It moves faster than than our reactions. It moves faster than government. It moves faster than culture. And we, over the last decade, we've seen people affected by social media. We've seen teen suicide on the rise. We've seen teen bullying. We've seen depression, anxiety, all of these things, all specifically 1000% related to social media, all happening as social media grew. And the reason I think is because we, uh, as the adults in the room, were kind of not we, we didn't know what was going to happen. We had no idea. And a lot of parents didn't, I mean, most parents, all parents didn't have any clue what the ramifications of these platforms were. And it's interesting because today my five-year-old, five and a half-year-old said, I, I want to get a cell phone. And I looked at him. I was like, what did you just say? And he said, well, one of my friends has one. And I was like, no, they don't. And he said, yeah, yeah, they do. They, they have their own cell phone. And I was, and it turned out that he was right. One of his friends has a cell phone. And I was just like, holy shit, like a five-year-old has a cell phone? Like what is- It's appalling, what is yeah. And what I have also realized having a three and a half year old and a five and a half year old is they, they're like sponges. They, they, they learn everything at this age. They don't learn everything when they're teenagers. At that point, they're like, they're people. And I feel like it's my job to teach my toddler at this age- my three and a half, five and a half year olds, the ramifications of these things and to 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 help them understand the things that they are seeing online and what the implications are. And that is how you fix it. You don't get to fix it when they're 14. This is Inside the Hive. Well, what is what is the takeaway that you want them to learn and, and the takeaway that you want everyone who watches your documentary to learn? What is what are the ramifications? What are the things that we should be taking away and walking away with and teaching our kids and telling our friends about? I just want more followers. That's the whole, the only reason I'm here. You honestly. got it, babe. Uh, <laughs> so if you can follow me. <laughs> uh, the takeaway, honestly, I think it's two things. Is um, For me, the takeaway personally, and I hope that this is the same thing for others, is I had this realization that, well, first I think it's, it's, it's sad that 87% of kids want to be famous influencers more than anything else. And I hope that once they see how the sausage is made and how it's all bullshit and how the people behind it are miserable and so on and so forth and the effects it can have, I hope that even just, even if a handful of kids see it and don't want that from their, for their life, then the, the film has done something. But the biggest, biggest takeaway for me was that Influencer culture at the end of the day is designed to make you feel like shit. It is designed to, to make you feel like you live a an awful life and here is this person who leads a better life. And I I wouldn't follow an influencer if you put a gun to my head uh because anymore, because I think that the whole premise of their of their world is to make you feel worse so that you want to buy and engage with the thing that they got for free, even if the thing that they got for free is garbage. And so my hope is that, that 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 is what people take away from it and that they they don't want to be be that a and they don't want to engage with it. And and that, you know, and maybe maybe then people will stop stop giving a shit as much. Yeah. Well, and especially uh, I got to say that the people who are most susceptible to this uh, and I can attest to this are teenagers, you know, and teenage girls, especially. um you know, are looking at this and their whole value system can get warped by this stuff so quickly and easily. And, you know, the appeal is obvious on just a, on a shallow level. And if uh, you're talking about teaching your five and a half year old how to, you know, deal with the incoming social media shadow that will be cast over their life. I mean, so much of this has to do with um, peer pressure also. And basically, that's what influencers are, right? They're just like the top of the pyramid of peer pressure. 
trying to make everybody else feel bad and to need their thing. It's like a teenage model of of how to relate to society, like the worst side of teenagers, right? Yeah, it's it's absolutely the case. And I think that um, I always think about the movie um, War Games when he wants to play thermonuclear war and, and the computer says the only way to win is to not play the game. And I feel like the algorithms that the, that these, these companies have created are so advanced and so adept at knowing what is going to make us click and what is going to make us come back. And that, that it's the same thing. The only way to win is not play the game. And, and I think that that's just the realization we all have to come to at some point. Beautifully put. And I'm anytime you can bring up a Matthew Broderick film from the 80s, I'm happy. <laughs> Nick, um, tell us, where can everyone watch this? Tell us the name. Tell us all the things that we should follow and know, because it really is such a worthwhile thing to do, particularly now when we're all sitting at home with our phones glued to our hands. Yeah. And also everyone is looking for great content to watch. And this is really great content. Well, thank you so much. And thanks for having me on, guys. Um, it's uh, Fake Famous. It's on HBO starting February 2nd. I think it premieres at 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 Pacific. Uh, that's next Tuesday or this Tuesday coming up. Um, and it will then be on HBO Max. Uh, and you can see the trailer on YouTube and Instagram and Twitter and all those places that we just ragged on for the last hour. Um, and uh, <laughs> Um, and yeah, I, and, and make your kids watch it because hopefully, hopefully they'll. I, I'm going to do that, and uh, I'm going to tell them it was written and directed by somebody I know, Nick Bilton, uh, reporter and documentarian. Documentarian, I'm I'm just out here saving lives. Okay, you know, so yeah, you doing know. what you can, man. <laughs> we loved having Thank you, you here. So much, Come guys. back anytime, and yep. congratulations on the awesome, awesome doc. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you to our guest, Nick Bilton, and of course, my co-host, Joe Hagan. If you enjoyed this conversation, please be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, Radio.com, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. Thanks to the great work of Cadence 13 for their production and Brett Fuchs as well. And thanks, of course, to our sponsors. Please be sure to support them any way you support this podcast. We will see you right here next week.